0: Hi guys, welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, the show on YouTube and podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Another day, another interview, and I say that with the biggest smile on my face because I have got today a fellow author on board here. I've got Sue Fizzle. And please, you guys out there in the English-speaking countries, please forgive me. Thistle is written with a TH, and my mouth cannot do the TH thing. My wife tried to beat it into me for 25 years now. She has failed miserably. It's, it's like a red rag to a bull for her. So please forgive me out there. And Sue, please forgive me uh, for being unable to pronounce your name in the beautiful way that you you would like it to be. (laughs) Welcome to my show, Sue. Thank you. (laughs) Sue is not just a fellow author. She is a a gorgeous human being who is involved in the alcohol rehabilitation uh, industry uh, for a long period of time. And there are so many avenues I could take today to talk to you, Sue. But I guess uh, let's, let's start off with, uh, when you were a young girl, when you were 10, I'm sure you didn't think about becoming involved in, in uh, alcohol rehabilitation. What were your initial dreams? What were you thinking you would become?
1: Ah. That's a very good question. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, by the way. (laughs) Um, I really appreciate it. Um, When I was 10, I was writing poetry and we were uh, it was a friend of mine down the street. He and I would sit and write poetry and we had connected with Random House at the time. And I you know, I don't know whatever became of the poetry. Uh, he wound up with it all. So who knows, it could be out there, I don't know. But I always wanted to write. And so uh, I do have a published poem out there right now. And um, But uh, that's how I started. I never planned on being uh, in the addiction field. <laughs> Nor did I when I went to school. I went to school, because I always wanted to write and I had written a uh, biography and um, about 20 years ago I wrote one and um, sent it to Random House because that's who I knew. And they said, you know, we really need you to write something else and become famous or something to that effect before we do this. And I said, okay, no problem. But of course, you know, life gets the better half of you. And all the books that I read, being in recovery for 33 years now, when I first got into recovery, I was reading everything I could. Like, why was I behaving that way? And the books that I was reading people either had a master's or a doctorate. So when I went to college, um, I, you know, I did my undergrad. I was really scared going to school. Um, but I was getting good grades and it's interesting because this is making me think. I had a professor who, in my psychology class, I took a psychology class, and he wrote this. I still have it. This paper. I never asked for it. It said, "You know, your psychology is amazing." Blah blah blah. And uh, if anybody wants to talk to me about, you know, you getting in the field, um, just have them call me. And he was he was a I don't know, doctor of psychology, I guess. But, um, so I finished my undergrad, and then when I went to get my doctorate, uh, my master's, I wish I had a doctorate. When I went to get my master's, um, I thought I better get a master's in addiction because nobody's gonna listen to me until I at least have a master's. And I went, cause I wanted to write, not because I wanted to be in the addiction field. But as I you know, wound up doing internships, um, I started to be like, wow, this human connection thing's really cool. I liked it. And so um, so I started working in the field. I started uh, counseling and uh, did that for many years, and then uh, First, I started with prevention when I was in my undergrad, I did some prevention work. And then um, I started to do counseling and manager and just kind of worked my way up to running addiction treatment centers. So yeah, no, I didn't plan on it. (laughs) So here I am. Mental health center, and then um, then I wound up managing uh, substance abuse services uh, for that same center. And what happened was um, I had been there for uh, six years, and then I left, and I went back for a couple more years. Um, and uh, actually, that happened a couple times. So, but totally eight years, right? And so then I started noticing the people that I was supervising were leaving and making like 20,000 more than me a year. And I said, huh, something wrong with this picture, you know? So, um, I started looking and, uh, I wound up connecting with the, with the, um, uh, a man who was setting up suboxone clinics. So, um, I don't use, I don't know if you've noticed, even on my bio on the back of the book, I don't use anybody's names because I know that this book is very controversial, that chem-free sobriety has gotten to the place where it's like controversial, which it has never been. And I think that may have something to do with the pharmaceutical industry. Um, But that's why I've just kind of left all the names of the places I've been to out. Um, and the names of the folks in the book, as you noticed, none of them, none of the last names are in there. That's, that's for many reasons. But in any event, I set up, um, I helped set up, uh, nine different treatment centers in New Hampshire. And, um, my goal with that was a bridge, you know, help them to get to the sobriety, you know, and, um. When I left there, I went and ran, uh, we got them all set up and I left there and went to work for a small uh, residential outpatient treatment center. Um, And they were not, accepting insurance they were strictly uh, the state funded them for their treatment and so i set up all their uh billing and uh set it up in a way that their um policies and procedures met the state standards and so i was there a couple of years and um decided to move on and um and then I was hired by a Christian um, agency uh, to run, to get them set up. They had, oh, I think five people there when I went there. And that was an outpatient treatment. Um, and by the time I left there, I was driving an hour and a half a day commute. So mm-hmm. I was three hours a day driving. And that's, you know, I said, I just, I can't do this anymore. I really wanted to be closer to home. Unfortunately, where I live is kind of rural, and so um, I'm just to get to any activity, it's 20 minute drive and then there's really nothing there. So the places where I've worked have always been uh, a commute. But anyways, I set up um, I set up their agency. they just had a um, outpatient uh, counselor. that was it. By the time I left, we had uh, a recovery center. We had uh, three IOPs, intensive outpatient programs. We had four MLADACs, which are a big deal, master level licensed alcohol and drug counselors. We were a full-fledged billing system under the agency instead of the the person that was there was doing it under himself. And um, we had purchased a a building, so we also had another center in uh, an hour and a half uh, not an hour and a half. It was uh, about 40 minutes away north. So um, I guess that's my, that's uh, mm-hmm. uh, business. I've kind of always been in business too. Um, my dad has owned businesses and I've always kind of been watching and mm-hmm. learning um, and took a lot of business courses throughout mm-hmm. uh, college and and that sort of stuff. So uh,
0: so, which is great. I mean, that makes you the person uh, who you are, a very valuable asset for any institution that you are affiliating yourself with, which is fantastic. Right. Right. Um, can, you, can you shed a bit of light uh, on the scene there? At the moment, I mean, I, I did my rehab. I did an a, a inpatient rehab four weeks. In Capri Hospital, and I'm very, very proud to use their name. Unfortunately, they, the hospital in this way as it was is no longer longer in existence. Uh, it has changed towards a smaller setup, which is Capri Sanctuary. Good on you guys out there, Capri rocks. Um, so, the, um, so I'm proud of them, and and they did. If they like it or not, I make advertisement for them. Um, uh having said that, so I'm and I'm quite open in my book, I paid uh dollars 20, New Zealand dollars for four weeks as an inpatient. How much would that cost me at the moment in New Hampshire? What are sort of the price ranges that are there for those guys out there who are seriously thinking they need help but actually don't know how to go about it and for whom uh, where they think actually i really need that break in my life i need four weeks inpatient
1: that's interesting Um, i hate to say what ours is because then you'll have everybody coming up here for treatment (laughs) and our places are overwhelmed um you can, you know, that, that, I don't think we have even one place in New Hampshire that's 27,000 uh, a month. Um, remember,
0: remember that's New Zealand. So yeah, I don't know
1: if it's changed. Do you?
0: Oh, uh, call it 1. 1.6, 1. 1.7. So let's call it 18,000, 18,000 US.
1: Okay. Yeah, no. Um, we have, uh, you know, insurance really rules around here. So every, not everybody, when I, the last place I worked at, it was excruciatingly painful to watch, to first of all, not be able to get people into treatment because there just wasn't any. And then um, if there was a bed open, then if they had Medicaid, you know, we would look all over New England, right? There'd be beds open, but Medicaid only works in our state. And, and so they don't get a bed, you know? I mean, I was literally begging and pleading people to take some of our, cause we had, we were doing lower income folks. Mm-hmm. And um, so, but um, there are other, pl- there are places in New Hampshire that'll, you know they' they can run from you know if you have insurance, you don't have to worry. your insurance will cover it mm. and uh but but probably about five thousand uh a month it, that's 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 cheap compared to what you paid mm. you know
0: so but five, there are
1: what, cases.
0: well, what do I get for that? i mean in my in my rehab, I had basically I went to school. From eight o 'clock in the morning till pretty right. much uh, four in the afternoon, um, yes. I had uh, a multitude of inputs from counselors mm-hmm. the psychologist the psychiatrist. I had uh, hotel class food because nutrition was stressed as one of those micro habits that are so important that you need to re establish mm-hmm. all these kind of things, so they were living the the exemplary life and it uh it it all costs money so i can very much see that and since i did not have any insurance and there's not really any insurance that pays here i i do not know actually to be fair but i uh, i'm not sure that uh, many insurances would pay a stint in a rehab hospital so therefore it is more or less what you have to pay, and they were they were superb. Um, I have absolutely no qualm, and it was the best twenty seven thousand I've ever 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 invested in anything in my life. So let's be clear there. would I do it again? Hell yes, hell yes. Um, so therefore, I'm, I'm saying: what is? Are we comparing apples with oranges? How many hours of of qualified input would there be for a person in inpatient rehab?
1: Right, right, and so what you're talking about, we just don't have in New Hampshire, sad, isn't it? In, there's McLean Hospital in Massachusetts, there's, and I've I've been like racking my brain as you're talking, like where, we we haven't, we just don't have it, Hampstead Hospital, Dartmouth, Dartmouth uh, doesn't have a rehab, a inpatient rehab. We used to have places like that, and then they all closed down. So what happened up here was, um, the insurance was kind of ruling the roost around here. So mm. they said, um, you don't need residential, you need
0: outpatient. <laughs> so
1: when this all hit, this mm. opiate epidemic, opiate epidemic hit. We didn't have. We had 600 beds way back. I, you know, I, I remember our congresswoman, one of our congresswomen, uh, spoke about it one time. It was 600. But when this all hit, we had 100 beds in the Right.
0: Oh wow. So yeah. things had been slashed down dramatically. And yeah. then you say, when the opiate epidemic hit, what, are, what year are we talking about? Yeah. All, all about?
1: So probably uh, 2012,
0: 13. Interesting. So that is quite late, and with that, you, you're probably referring to fentanyl, yeah. because yeah. the ox, the oxycodone story started well earlier, didn't it? But it was no, sort of
1: it was around 2012.
0: All right. Um, two, okay. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And then it, then it. um And at that time, we started having uh, Suboxone be prescribed outside of the hospital, right? I'm trying to get this right. Um, Then it just got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, worse, right? So we had Oxycontin and then fentanyl up here anyways. Fentanyl probably, it's really bad now, where one of my students, um, because I I teach a class about drugs at the college, one of my students, uh, I'm trying to think when that was, probably last year or the year before, um, she was doing a presentation on heroin. And I said, "Well, here's the you know state website. Just go on there and um, find out how many overdoses." She said, "They don't have any." I said, "What are you talking about? Of course they do. Let's go on there. You know, sure enough, they didn't have any pure heroin overdoses." all of it was laced with fentanyl. It was fentanyl and heroin or mm. straight fentanyl, a lot of straight fentanyl. Mm. So I don't know if it's coming up here later than down there, but uh, fentanyl is a fairly new one that's seen maybe 10 years.
0: Yeah. Mm. Oh. And it's it's weird. It's it's a core drug. What okay. I use as an as an anesthetist, I use fentanyl every single day, and it is a beautiful drug when you are using it in the right way in theatre. It's a powerful painkiller, but of course, it's it's uh, it's chemically made, and it is a it's a drug that is lipid soluble. Means it goes very quickly into the brain. It is very effective from that angle, uh, giving you quick, peak uh, brain concentrations. And that's really what triggers the addiction. It's the kind of the hit, the speed with which the drug hits the brain. The the faster that is, the more likely you will get addicted. And uh, it is not surprising for an enterprising bastard in a gang to say, oh, have a look here. That's quick how we get them onto the needle, um, or into any other way. So that mm-hmm. is the reason why this is such a dangerous truck.
1: It is very dangerous,
0: and it is it is bizarre because I can I assume that all that is gang driven. I mean, who are the people who are selling it? This is no longer a, a dodgy, crooky, uh, so called pain pain specialists. Um, as it was with oxycodone and these clinics that kept opening up here and there and everywhere. Um, But no, we are talking seriously, that's, that's gang, virtually hundred percent.
1: I don't know if you can say it's all gang. You know, I just watched something the other day. It's interesting because they played a video that I played in my class about the um, fentanyl. uh, It's scary. Actually, uh, 60 minutes. I don't know if you guys have that down there. Mm Mitt Rom, Mitt not Mitt Romney, <laughs> Bill Whitaker. Mm-hmm. He uh, does uh, a program, sixty minutes, with other people, and he talked about he had people on there that he was interviewing, who were talking about the pharmaceuticals really pushing their salespeople to sell fentanyl, to sell fentanyl pops, to sell fentanyl, um, and just saying that's easy to tie trade off it, and um, yeah. So it's, I don't think it's just the gangs. I think we've got both. I think we've got it being shipped in from all over. Um, There may be some narco terrorism. I don't know. Um, But it's certainly pharmaceuticals are, you know, they're making big, big money. They made money off OxyContin. Now they're making money off the treatment with Suboxone and Methadone and and uh yeah the gangs are doing it too but um it's certainly i I think there's a whole bunch of different things coming on at once unfortunately wow and people are dying and they don't realize that these these folks pay lots of money to find out who you are the type of person that uses and um And sell to them. It's pretty simple. Let's sell to them. You know what? You guys in the United States are the only ones in the world, (laughs) I don't know if you know this, that advertise in in your homes uh, for medication. Not that fentanyl is being advertised, but New Zealand and the United States are the only ones in the world that advertise uh, pharmaceuticals into the TV at home.
0: But then again, the stuff that we get advertised is um uh it's probably some a bit of hay fever medication and a bit of this and a bit of that nothing nothing wild is certainly not nothing compared with the United States so whilst maybe on paper you're right in in the reality, there is not much really. Uh, Hitting me, or at least in a conscious way, that okay. I could say as a doctor, I don't know about the subliminal messaging. advertising, etc. The messaging, I'm not sure about that. I uh, certainly, we, we, if you look at alcohol, which is my main interest, uh, there you have got subliminal left, right, and center. So whilst okay. the, the advertising uh requirements have changed maybe a little bit in reality for crying out loud alcohol is everywhere and yeah. it is placed everywhere.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um
0: wow. So in the rehab centers that you were involved with, inpatient or outpatient, so the majority of the workload seems to be opiates, do I get that right? Or was that something that just those rehab centers that you worked in actually specialized in?
1: No, we didn't specialize. We had to learn quick no. <laughs> to specialize in it. But, uh, you know, it was hard to have your garden variety drunk coming through the door. Most of them were opiates, yeah. Shit. And,
0: well which is yeah. crazy, which is crazy wow. because the, the alcoholics don't go away. They are there. They are, they are. We are yeah. a hardcore drinking bunch. <laughs> hey, And it, even now, Gen C, um, is still drinking whilst they are all health-conscious, and let me have a kale crisp with that, please. Uh, and I'm taking a make out of you guys. Sorry, I, I love it that you all are, are out there and healthy, etc. What does the alcohol industry do? They offer you something new. Forget the carbs in the wine. Forget the carbs in the beer. Bad for you. Why don't you have a hard seltzer? Water with a bit of carbon dioxide, a bit of taste, which basically cost me so much so far, maybe one cent or two cent. Add a bit of alcohol in there, 40% preferably. Um, and there we have got a hard seltzer. Here you go. No calories, girl. Go for a spin class and then get pissed. Yay. So, you know, it is even now. And that, that sells in the last five years. So the alcohol industry coming up with new tricks to get absolutely everyone involved. Mummy, I mean, it's, it's not a lunchtime if you haven't had at least a glass of wine with your girlfriends. Because remember, when the kids come home at three, mayhem rains. But it's much easier when you're a bit pissed. So you have another glass. Mm-hmm. so <laughs> that's that's how the way it is it's it's social engineering and it's worst so i see all that but what's happening to all the alcoholics in the united states then so
1: well, what's happened is um through this whole covid thing there was a study that just came out and i can't remember who did it but uh, it said that 55 percent increase since the covid hit And I was on a call, um, a peer collaboration call with other folks who are in the, that have the same license. And uh, they were saying they're starting to see people who've never, you know, new alcoholics, you know, which we have not seen, you know, most of it was opiates near the end there. Now we're, you know, more alcoholics are coming in the door. So, um, so that it's just, it's a lot. It's a lot and and even though we we have decreased the um use my hands again
0: <laughs> oh yes yeah, <just> use them <laughs> that's perfect <laughs> just just don't do the drum on the on the microphone
1: <laughs> realizing more and more. um even though uh you know we've had the opiate issue uh and we've had overdose deaths. Uh, the overdose deaths have gone down a little bit since we uh, Narcan is out there. Um, but uh, that's the problem: is Narcan is out there, so we have thousands of people who are not dying, but they're still having to be revived. And I and I worry about what that's going to do to the brain of folks who are being revived. You know some of them having to be revived. I have one person, I don't know if you read that in the book, but one person who they uh, had to drill her, mm-hmm. did a drill, mm-hmm. some sort of drill thing where uh, put Narcan in her, sh- in her bone to get her to come alive. Mm-hmm. She was dead for a long time. I don't remember exactly, but um, you know, thank God she's alive. She's beautiful, beautiful woman doing really, really great. I'm so excited. Um, oh, but this is, this is scary, scary. The whole thing is scary. This, and and that. For
0: those viewers and listeners out there but what Sue was referring to is the fact that paramedics, or certainly New Zealand doctors, we give, an, uh, give it a shot twice to get a needle into the vein. And if we then can't get access to your venous system, then we use a, uh, an intraosseous device, so these are uh, either little mini guns which shoot a short needle through the one side of the bone into the center of a bone, typically on here, the upper arm, or on your shin. And with that, we gain access to the to the bone marrow there, which can act just a little bit slower than, than a vein, but it will equally work. So if you can't get a vein, because you've used it up as a, as a junkie, and we need to get something into you, then this is a very acceptable way of getting drugs into you. So that's what paramedics do, and that's why we ought to, to thank them whenever we can, because these guys are out there on the front line, often under dire circumstances, especially now with COVID, and are still helping, rescuing lives. So my heart goes out, the paramedics out there in the field. You guys are doing a fantastic job. Thank you for your service too. to everyone, but specifically to those people that are probably not so nice to be dealt with, where you have to worry when you turn it back to the ambulance, will the ambulance still be there? Or if the ambulance is there, will it still have wheels? Or is yes, everything being robbed out of it? Uh, because someone wants to have a fix so guys you're doing a fantastic job shout out to you there um interesting 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 so i'm so grateful that i talked to you today and whilst i was uh, i was so keen to talk about your book i I do apologize okay. maybe to everyone else out there. it is i it is such an intriguing field because i I kind of know what's happening here uh, in in New Zealand, but you only hear either headlines in the news, and you wonder which service is manipulating those headlines for their own political gains, either too much or too little or you know. I mean, nowadays, I listen to, to Russian television, Al Jazeera, CNN. I've given up on Fox, for crying out loud. Um, the German, German ones, just to get an idea about the same topic, because everyone is doing his own, his own right. bloody fiddling of the numbers. Right. Right. So you guys are needy been shit basically. So you've yeah. got still the fentanyl going. You've got the oxycodone still as a little baseline. You have got the alcohol. You have got now with COVID and with all the external stresses that are hitting you guys, the unemployment, etc. you will have an increase in the use of drugs to numb the pain. Where the hell are you guys going? Is the, are the rehabilitation services catching up? Are there, is there an increase in numbers of counselors? Is there an increase in number of bids? Is there actually, a, a even on the local level, a, an attempt to decriminalize for police to not be as hard, but rather to involve drug services, drug rehabilitation services at an early stage?
1: so the um the beds went from 100 i think last i I connected with the state they said we were up to uh 400 so that's still 400 before we had 600 before a crisis came right we're up to 400 ish now i'm sure there's more we have folks coming up here setting up rehabs um which is good which is good um I, I think we need more. And so hopefully that's going to happen. Um, unfortunately, the money that just came out from our federal government the past uh few times went to medication assisted treatment. It did not go to the folks who were not doing medication assisted treatment and uh, they've, um, encourage folks who did not do medication assisted treatment to receive grant funding. If they did, so some have done some bridge work, are doing that. We still have some that do not ex- do not take people with medication assisted treatment. They're hanging in there. But this was the reason for writing Free Sobriety because I was starting to see everybody get medicated. I was, I was like, what is going on here? <laughs> Why are we medicating the living daylights out of everybody? And they're still using on top of it. You know, I started right before I left, I started to hear, you know, we always would say, what's your drug of choice. I started to hear Suboxone. I was like, Whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's easy. You can take it. And then, Yeah, you can't use opiates, but you can take benzos. You can get docs to prescribe you benzos, and you can take those even though they're lethal to take together. Um, But you can get docs who will prescribe that. Um, You can drink on it. You can take other drugs, you know. So, uh, And some folks were playing with them, you know. And you can read about that in the book. Um, But I think what's happened here in the United States is that we went to everybody's getting medicated to wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute our national association of addiction counselors said wait a minute wait a minute we need a balance here you know it's not that i disagree with medication if people want to take it that's fine but the reason for writing this book is to say hey you don't have to there's there's a 12 step program there's other programs celebrate recovery there's all kinds of other programs out there that um there's, there's another way. And what was starting to happen was abstinence. You're a bad person. If you believe in abstinence, This like this reverse shaming. They felt they were saying that they were being shamed and now they're shaming people. I remember a uh, Vivitrol, uh, Vivital, Vivitrol, I forget how to say it now. Um, uh, provider who I had worked with for years. Um, he, he said, oh, Sue, it's really weird. They're, they're, telling people not to take this, you know, that this is a, this is a bad thing. I said, yeah, that's what I'm seeing. Like they're telling people they will die if they don't take medication assisted treatment. Literally. I had a guy, I had to, I had friended him on Facebook and I had to defriend him because he was saying to me, you shouldn't be telling people not to take medication. I said, I'm not telling people that. And he goes, because they will die. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. (laughs) There are thousands of people. Heroin is not new. Heroin is not new. Opiates are not new. People have been taking them forever. So, and and they've been able to stop and stay stopped through a recovery program. Of course. So to tell people, if you don't take it, you will die. Because what they're saying is the pharmaceuticals or whoever, I don't know who's pushing this, but what they're saying is if you stay sober for a while and then you go back out and use, you're more likely to overdose. So what does that tell you? That tells you that if you don't take a medication, then you could die. Oh, bullshit. Right?
0: Unbelievable. Unbelievable. That,
1: that's why I don't put anybody's names in there. I haven't talked to the school yet to say, hey, you know, because I know one girl said to me, Sue, you know, you're going up against a pharmaceutical company. I said, yeah, and I don't even care because I, you know, I'm 57. I don't care. <laughs> I want what's right out there. And, you know, I could get fired. I could, you know, never, you know, find a, you know, if I wanted to get a job. I think it, the next step is to do my own center. But, um, I know that this word, and, and the 101 people in that book know that sobriety works without medication. There's no doubt about it. It's an absolute truth. There are thousands of people all over the world staying sober without medication. And I was nervous about meeting with you because I was thinking, oh my God, he's a doctor. I hope he's okay with this.
0: <laughs> so uh, no, no, it is for me, I'm a, I'm a common sense guy. Yeah. and and there was there is, there are medications available to help you when it comes to alcohol uh yes. it is uh, and they they can play a role my my the, the people who helped me were initially a bit reluctant to to put me on anything um but then i convinced them to prescribe me a preventer, uh, a drug that, if I take any alcohol, will give me the most atrocious, uh, funny reaction that makes me spew and, and throw up and, and feel, makes me feel awful, awful, awful. Uh, antabuse, uh, it's called here, the trademark. And I convinced them, please put me on it, My my GP. And he said, okay, cool. I'm happy with that. So there I was for a month on it. And it was a kind of bit of a a crutch, I guess. And I knew if uh, if I had the slightest bit of alcohol, I would feel sick like a dog. A month later, I had some blood tests and my liver was hammered. I had a chemical hepatitis. So the drug that was supposed to help me and save me and gave me essentially it was a, a crutch nothing else uh right. nearly killed me right. so here you go so right. every drug, every drug that you take potentially has side effects so like it or lump it so there is no drug in this world that could not kill you one way or the other allergic reactions right. funny right. reactions that that suddenly your liver goes on holiday and never comes back These kind of things. So let's be quite clear about that. Uh, More importantly, all the work that I have been doing on myself and people have assisted me with was essentially healthy. And when I say healthy, uh, I mean mind work. It's Mm -hmm. the mind work that changes addiction. Yes, drugs can play a role. There's absolutely no doubt about it. But if you don't deal with the PTSD, the depression, the anxiety, the trauma, when you don't deal with that, then your drugs are nothing else than a bloody crutch. And how long will do you want to have a crutch? Yes, you heard your leg, but how about you healing that leg and how about walking back on it? How long do you want to wear a crutch? So please... So here you go. I think there is so much work that needs doing. And that's that's what my book is all about. It is about living this life, but you have to do the hard work to get there. And the hard work is a beautiful journey because you're actually healing as part of that journey. And you get to decide who you want to be when you grow up. You are, again, redefining your vision and you learn tools to work towards it and Mm -hmm. these tools are really 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 important I'm not saying that there might not be a drug here and there that might be of help for you to get there but it's the hard work and the the work that you do up there in between your ears what matters not what you put in there Mm -hmm. so I think that is the key thing and that absolutely everyone who is involved in the addiction uh, world out there I would have thought would be very clear about that. Yet, I'm hearing from you the reality of funding and lobbying being the Mm -hmm. key ingredients to determine Mm -hmm. what kind of rehab you're getting. Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely pissing me off (laughs) that's absolutely pissing me off because it is it is i mean i wrote it in my book why is why is it 28 days why is the inpatient rehab typically four weeks
1: right because that was the
0: maximum that the insurance company would fund and therefore it's four weeks and now suddenly we said oh sorry there's no more funding there but you can do outpatients and suddenly the outpatients will be peddled and I must say, much of the, the rehab was happening not in the classes, in rehab, but around the classes. It was on the walk uh, around the lake with another druggie or addict that we, that we talked. And it was around the, the jacuzzi uh, at nighttime where people talked. It was a bloody, whilst we, whilst we hated addiction, obviously. Everyone was smoking <laughs> in, in, when I went to rehab. So everyone was out there. And I didn't like smoking, but even I liked to just stand around the guys because you're trying to look for something else. Go on, they've just taken my toy away. So you're, you're looking for other addictions to, to hit. And But having said that, uh, in the smokehouse, sitting out there under, in the gazebo and talking shit, that was just as important in the rehab. As, as what we learned in the class, so I must say uh, i'm a strong advocate of especially people like me, uh, people who are skeptical, who are bullshitters uh, who have that at a master level, and who who can very easily pull the wool over someone 's eyes uh, in a quick outpatient one hour two hour setting. It's not so easy when you're in an inpatient and people really get to know you and uh, see you for what you are, a bullshitter, and then help you to get over that. So there is a lot to be said about inpatient rehab. But of course, if it is A, not in existence, B, if it is driven uh, in certain directions by funding streams that make it not so nice, is very disappointing to say mm-hmm. the least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh God! Um, let's let's focus though on the chem-free. So let's think for a moment about not taking medications. And I think what I should do is I should in in one of the the future uh, interviews I will hunt someone down who is actually an advocate. Of medications, and I would like to hear his or her story and his or her insights, because obviously there is a positive side to medications as well, and something something that we that I might not be as aware of, and my listeners might not be as aware of. So I think it's fair to bring the balance. So let's hear both sides. Uh, But I think I I know because having done the hard work and having reaped the rewards from it. Please, that's fine. I have to admit, I'm an alcoholic. I'm not a opiate-dependent person. So maybe I would have had different insights, would have had different beliefs um, had I been injecting uh, fentanyl or things like that as part of my journey. Right. So right. that's that's maybe fair to say as well. So, But having said that, I mean, I read your book. Um, it is a, a beautiful book because you have collected 101 stories of people and you have, you have systematically asked them the same questions and the book is all about the answers. And you gave them a coat hanger, so to speak, for them to hang their, their stories on. And it is beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful to see the variety of people. I mean, you had a whole cross-section of society there in this book. Mm. And for all of you out there who are interested in in the addiction field and wants to hear the stories of those people where they had been and what happened to them it's absolutely amazing please read that book it's well worth it mm-hmm. uh, and the chemphre society is the story is really their story it's not something that Sue has. Somehow made up. It is just their story. So there are 101 stories in there of people where medications haven't played a big role. Mm -hmm. And so, if you ever were to worry that oh no 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 no, see I have to take medications, there are 101 examples there where where medications didn't play a major role. Mm -hmm. So look at it like that. So if you're looking for evidences, at least on a anecdotal basis, well there you have got.
1: Let me just say, too, about this book that, um, if I if I could explain. Please, just- please, please, please. Um, it was also because of what was happening about the overprescribing of suboxone and methadone um, and the whole harm reduction. Harm reduction has been around for a long time, too. We've, we've always, if somebody doesn't want to quit, totally. If you want to, you know, go to a movie and just don't drink and drive and, you know, all these other things, Mm -hmm. right? Some of what they're calling harm reduction really is maintenance. And maintenance is the thing that the majority of the story, uh, they talk about how, you know, having a spiritual connection is very hard when you're on something, you know? Mm. Um, But this was also the last part of the book. They all have suggestions for lawmakers and decision makers. So if you're a doctor or if you're a a, a representative, Congress, um, Senate, there's suggestions in there for what to do and uh, how to do it. There's also uh, information about medication and what their thoughts are about that. I wanted to make sure that they could talk openly and honestly about what was going on. So, um, and what their thoughts were for lawmakers. One of the questions was, what what do you want lawmakers to know? Mm -hmm. Um, So there, these are folks, most of them, most of them have over 10 years of sobriety Um, I think I have seven with over 40 years. One of them, the longest one was 49 years. So I wanted to make sure they either had a year or more of sobriety. And I really wanted people with long-term sobriety because, um, you know, these are folks who are, you know, there's things that they're doing and they are in the book that help them maintain that long-term sobriety. And not all of them are twelve step folks. There are folks who are using Buddhism, and uh, one of them uses uh, his reading and connection with others. and um, so so just so people know that it's not just a twelve step uh, mm. program. I know mm. there's one of the reviews talked about it being twelve step. It's not all twelve step. Mm. Um, so I wanted to just get that out there. Mm.
0: Um, and I think, After today, I see some of the distinct differences between my world here and the America, where you guys are far more living in drawers. So it has to fit in a drawer. So the 12-step program automatically means religious, groups, sitting on chairs, not the systematic approach to dealing with a problem, but rather the program. That's it. Boom. And it is a little bit bizarre to actually <laughs> listen to you and and it seems to be it it just sometimes I, I catch myself and say, did you just just say that? Is that really the way that is? Because it's just different from from my logical approach, or my common sense approach, etc mm-hmm. so and that is really, really important, so i 'm learning heaps from you by getting a reality check here, and maybe and it 's interesting that that there was a certain criticism here oh it 's all twelve steps that the the people in your book were doing. I love what you said. You don't need the 12 steps. So let's get that out there, please, guys. We are not here peddling one way of getting clean, getting sober. Mm -hmm. The 12 steps, if they work for you, brilliant. If uh, a recovery uh, by any other name Works for you, women in recovery, life ring those kind of systems out there, whatever works for you, as long as you 're doing the mental work that that you need to do to right. deal with the pain and therefore no longer at one stage feel then the need that you have to shoot up or use or drink that 's really where this is going, guys, so this is not about us saying. Uh, we all need to meditate together. Um, and it's, we are not ringing bells here, and we are not doing kind of whatever, whatever kind of vision you have got of, of negativity associated with programs. We always we always try to find obstacles why we really can't go into rehab. Uh, it doesn't work. I don't have the money. Um, what will other people think? And it's all mumbo jumbo, and it's a cult. Oh, forget it, guys. Stop the bullshitting. Okay. <laughs> here, there is some, there is, if you are listening to that, the sheer fact that you listen to that either means that you're involved in the scene, um, probably the minority, or you know deep inside that you need help. And that's beautiful, the beautiful. I'm so pleased that you're here. Today might have been a bit of a hard one, especially if you live in America, because we probably have demystified some of the things and not in a nice way, Um, but it is is the reality. So now you at least know from Sue's perspective and my outside perspective, listening in that that not everything that, that clitters is gold when it comes to rehab and that rehabs might be determined by the funding and might be what kind of service you get might be determined where the money is coming from it just i hate that but it is that's that's where life is yeah if
1: you have money you can go anywhere yeah. You can have any rehab, you want.
0: Yeah. You can have yeah. Yeah. But then let's let's look at it again, guys. Le- learn from my story. Uh, my wife had to take a loan, and and we we didn't have the money uh, for my rehab. Uh, but it was quite clear that I would be either dead or in jail, or you know, probably dead would have been the the, the more likely outcome for me, either by my own hands or. Uh, by finally some liver failure or something like that. That would have been the predictable outcome with my alcoholic consumption, the amount I was drinking. And with the amount I was drinking, you're talking $30, $40 every day. Mm. Well, if you do that 100 days, if you do that 365 days, suddenly you think, hell, that's actually quite a bit of money. And that's only the money that I literally drank in liquid form. That's not the bad decisions, the takeaways, the, the other costs that are linked with the procurement and drinking. Uh, rather, and then, you know, the, 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 the trade me purchases, the, the eBay, Amazon uh, things that do this, through that. By the time I've blinked, I would have paid $27,000 in a year just on my addiction. Yeah. Right. Okay? So you're anyhow spending that money. You're just choosing now to actually stop drinking, stop using, use that money to invest in yourself, and suddenly you get the compound interest down the line when you're in a level like me now where you think, hey, it's called 6.20 in the morning, sun hasn't even risen, but I'm alive. I'm kicking. I'm not ratching, dry ratching over the toilet bowl. No, I'm actually... <laughs> You know, hey, this is a different story. Hey, uh, I can actually remember what I did last night. Ah, Now that's a new one. (laughs) So, okay, these are the things. There is a life waiting for you out there, guys. The life is beautiful. And if drugs help you to get, and when I say drugs, drugs that help you to get over your addiction for a period of time, if that is what you need or that is the only access that you have got, don't feel bad about it. Use it. But use it as a tool, as part of your rehab. Don't think, wow, I'm on suboxone or whatever the drug may be. I'm on it. That's it now. I will be clean. I will never have a relapse. Okay? So do the work, guys. Do the work and take it from there. God.
1: Yeah, and this book is actually, um, I say it's a, it's a, little meeting in a book in your home. You know. <laughs> um, what I suggest in the book is to read at least one of the stories a day because within those stories are just some golden nuggets for people to help them stay sober and clean. Um, and I use those words because that's what people use. Um, but it helps arrest this um, illness or disease, whatever you want to call it. it, helps you be in recovery. Mm. Or be recovered. This, you know, people call recovered. Some call it recovery. I don't know, um, but there are golden nuggets in the mm-hmm. book to help people. Um, and also, my undergrad is health education, wellness management. So it's about designing, implementing, and evaluating health programs. And so my mm-hmm. next book, which will come out hopefully soon, within the next few months or so. Um, I wanted all that information to be in this book, but I, I was like, "Okay, it's already 400 pages. I I don't want to put it in here because it'd be ridiculous to sell. Um, the the it would have to be like fifty dollars. <laughs> but the next book will be about those first 90 days and and um, kind of a condensed version of uh you know what what will it take physically, mentally, spiritually." Um, to To get through those first 90 days. So um, I'll look forward to getting that out soon and I'll let you know about that for
0: sure. That's beautiful. Yeah. And guys, I mean, that's, that's what this is all about, uh, learning from people who have been there or people who have facilitated others to go there, like with Sue. My book is written from my perspective, but it's also written from the doctor's perspective. So I... It is a combination of both worlds, which makes my book a bit unique. Sue's book will be unique because she comes from a different angle. We are both talking the same thing. Both will be very complementary. And some people will think my book is manna from heaven. And others think, yeah, it didn't really gel with me. But you might read Sue's book and think, wow, there, there it is. She, she just talks at my level. And that is, that is fine. And that's the same with recovery programs. So only because uh, you went to one meeting and the guy on the front really rubbed you up the wrong way, that, does not, that doesn't mean to say that that's it. Recovery is not for me. No, 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 no. Just look out there. Uh, taste this, taste that. Think of it like a smorgasbord and you you don't really know what you want to eat, well, you have a nipple on that, have a nipple of that, and suddenly you think, wow, that tastes good. It's the same in recovery, okay? Go out there, find what suits you. It will be a unique blend of maybe medications, maybe a certain degree of spirituality. Maybe you might be a hardcore skeptic where there is no deity that you want to be anywhere close with and that there is no spiritual whatever mumbo jumbo out there you hate crystals and wind chimes and whatever that's cool there will be a program out there for you and you just need to find that okay so i did i and i created my own program ultimately because it's my own blend and like right now i'm having a meeting with sue okay so this is this is, right now, we're working recovery. So I've done already an hour on my day, longer now today, and it was fantastic. So this is recovery work. You having a chat with, a, with another druggie, uh, hopefully in recovery, um, over a, a cup of coffee, that's cool. You helping someone uh, to get clean will strengthen your own sobriety you doing any of the steps will help you so it's it's a beautiful journey out there guys listen to us it is beautiful 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 there is a joy there's a gratitude there is a, a multitude of positive feelings waiting not the pain not the guilt the shame that is associated with the hiding of active drug addiction It's a beautiful life waiting out there, guys. And so have a a look at Sue's book because there are the stories in there, which, by the way, I find quite amazing. When I started this journey here of doing podcasting and YouTube channeling, etc., my aim was to bring the voices out of those in sobriety. In reality... I'm struggling to find people who have not become health coaches, who have not become life coaches them, themselves or counselors, to open up. It is still a taboo. It is still something that you keep shh, shh, shh. Mm-hmm. Uh, And that amazes me. I thought I would have had far more. Pe- that, that the people that you had interviewed, I thought I would have far more of them on here yet. No, that is not what is happening. So that's an interesting story. So it is still a taboo. And therefore, if you want an insight, buy Sue's book, it's well worth it. Yeah.
1: Hmm. And that book, 101 people, that's a very small section hmm. of New Hampshire. There's a, a hundreds and hundreds of more people. Those Each person represents hundreds of people in their town. Hmm. I actually went all over New Hampshire and not just uh, so I didn't want to get just a little section of New Hampshire, the middle mm. of New Hampshire where I live. I went all over, so mm. it's up and down and back mm-hmm. side, you know, east and west, um, just to mm. so it wouldn't be. Well, you only got it in this section, or mm. you know, there's 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 all kinds of different mm. professions that they're in. Um, you know, I think there's a hairdresser in there, there's a judge in there, there's a doctor in there, there's lawyers, there's you know. Um, people that, that, uh, there's one that doesn't have a job, you know, there's just a whole, I want it to be, and there are different drugs. There's alcohol, there's heroin, there's, you know, everybody's got something different. So I, I just believe that if you're hooked on something, whether it be alcohol or other drugs, you can and you can not use and stay sober mm-hmm. without anything and uh hopefully this book will help and and the next one down the pike and and yours as well
0: (laughs) (laughs) good so well i know already sue i need to bring you back on there is no doubt about that because uh once your next book is out or coming out we need to talk a little bit more about about your take of the first 90 days which is which is no doubt wonderful. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> no, honestly, I do, I do. So, so I'm so grateful uh, that you came onto my show today. That you were brave enough and honest enough to bring out the facts. I didn't expect that our interview will go where it went. I am surprised. And if either Sue or myself uh, end up with an accident in due course, then <laughs> <can> I <laughs> can someone please do a bit more detective work behind that. Uh, it might not be an accident. Um, no, it is. It is just bloody hell. Um, this is we're living in a in a in a world where you really need to cover your back and. It's sad, but I think you you thank you very much i uh, you gave me an insight into the American perspective, which I had not appreciated as much so i am incredibly grateful i'm I'm humble uh you've humbled me with your insights there, and um say again, thank you thank you, thank you for coming on to my show today thank you hmm. you guys out there. I give you all a huge hug from here remotely. There are not enough hugs in this world. And let's all work together. Let's make that a little bit a better world. One interview after the other. One decision. Little tiny decisions. Little tiny changes that will soon lead you onto a way that you can't recognize yourself anymore because it is such a different you that you have created. So Look after yourself out there. Bye.